Human first, everything else after. Welcome to What's Betwixt Us, stories of working while human. I'm Lissa Mandel. What's Betwixt Us is a series of conversations about empathy at work, at work. It's about diving into the messiness and the specificity of being human on the job, any job, and how empathy isn't just a nice-sounding buzzword for company PR. It's a rebellious act of remembering that we're human first, everything else after. Today on What's Betwixt Us, I'm joined by my dear friend Mike Kaplan. Mike is a comedian who's performed on The Tonight Show, Conan, The Late Show with David Letterman, Late Night with Seth Meyers, The Late Late Show with James Corden, and his own specials on Comedy Central, Netflix, and Amazon. He also recently released a new album called AKA, which you should listen to. More than any credentials or credits, though, Mike is one of the kindest, wisest, and most generous people I know. In this chat, he breaks down, in the signature stream-of-consciousness style, how comedy, if performed mindfully, can be one of the most empathetic career pursuits there is. Please enjoy Episode 10, Hecklers Just Need Love, with Mike Kaplan. All right, today on What's Betwixt Us, I am so delighted uh, and overjoyed to have on one of my dear, dear friends, uh, Mike Kaplan, and I'm going to let him introduce himself and what he does uh, to the listeners. So hi, Mike. Hello, Lissa. I am equally uh, over, It's I just, I never thought about the term overjoyed before, because I'm like, how much, uh, too, too much joy. There's just, it's overflow. I need, like, can somebody else take all this joy off my hands? Oh, God. Like, and it's certainly not, imagine the opposite. Like, I'm so over joy. I don't know. Joy, kind of, kind of 2000 different year. You know what I mean? Um, but uh, this is, I, so who I am, I am, my name is Mike Kaplan. Uh, I guess my main identity today is Lissa's dear friend and, uh, also, it is a reciprocal, mutual, two-way relationship. Uh, I also, I think I met you, Lissa, by being a comedian. Uh, and so I have been a stand-up comedian for the past 18 years or so. I also make music. And, uh, oh, yeah, I made, I made the, uh, the theme song to this very podcast, uh, among other theme songs and uh and non-theme songs some variation songs uh anyway i i do comedy and i'm lissa's friend those are my those are my main qualifications for being here (laughs) true i would say i would say yes in that order maybe not Um, (laughs) i yeah wow 18 years i didn't know that mike that's amazing um i i think we met doing uh the show that i did before this show the bitch seat when I was first doing it uh, live at the pit and you were connected to me by, by a mutual friend, Natalie. And I remember being so excited to have you because you were my first quote unquote famous person on the show. And it was so clear so quickly how much of a good um, compassionate person that you are. And so it ended up being uh doubly exciting because of course it's always nice to have a name for a show because you you bring more listeners into the show but it was such a pleasure to work with you that I continued to have you back over and over again and I guess I want to ask you I mean this whole show is about empathy at work Uh, and as a comedian 
I feel like you find so many ways to bring empathy into that when it's not often a field that you think about in association with empathy necessarily. Not that it's not, and I know many empathic comedians who are friends of mine, but there are lots of, there's a variety of personalities, I, would, I should say. And I'm gonna let you roll and say how you feel empathy comes into your work as a comedian generally, and then we can get more specific over time. Sure. Uh, I mean, I, so I'm not an expert in like the, the, the topic, the subject of empathy. Like, uh, I'm, I'm also a member, but I, uh, <laughs> like I didn't found the club. Uh, I'm still like learning and growing and there, I'm grateful that there are so many, you know, people who are, you know, both studying it and, uh, and manifesting it in various, like, you know, in literal like empirical ways uh in i i think your uh sort of intuitive and or like from or extuitive from within from without like uh sort of impression of comedy and of like of there certainly it seems like there are like some let me do some stereotypes of comedians like you know like i don't care i don't care what you think like carlin once famously said like to to his audience or about his audience and like as a joke but he said something like you're here for me i'm here for me no one's here for you <laughs> i love carlin <laughs> And that's funny and also, like, is not literally true. Right. Like, he clearly, he wasn't just doing his performances into a void for only himself. Like, right. like they may, perhaps, perhaps the greatest comedian who truly doesn't care what anyone else thinks about anyone else's experience is just, like, a wise Buddhist on a mountain somewhere. And they... <laughs> they're they're all the way up there because they don't even want people to come up and ask questions like okay if you make it all this way then okay but uh so i do i think that honestly like the, you know the same way that in let's say you know if you're raised in a family you know you have that's your first like okay this is this is how people are this is how adults are this is how children are this is like how this unit works and like hopefully like okay there's it's not necessarily us against the world but there's like there's us and then there's outside of us and then as you grow perhaps you learn about like okay there's the family there's maybe the town the tribe sometimes the religion sometimes the the ethnic identity you know sometimes like all these different you know overlapping uh circles of perhaps you know either identity or like you know pr practical like you know living structures you're like you know we we live you and i right now Lisa, in the united states of america we potentially pay taxes to this government and then they make roads and you know fund schools hopefully theoretically you know <laughs> um and and so you know i I, it's hard to even imagine, like imagine like, you know, a Star Trek future, you know, alternate universe type situation where we're like, what, like we're on this. It's not like the air stops 
Like, it's like, okay, we need breathable air in America only. America first, breathable air. Like, it, it, obviously, it's good why there are, like, pacts between nations where we're like, hey, like, this is a planet that's doing a thing, and it'd be good for us to all be hopefully on the same page with respect to, like, it's not a zero-sum game. In fact, it's a, like, a, the more, it's like a, a prisoner's dilemma, but... We, you know, we, we would love to all, we're all prisoners on the earth. And like, so we all benefit if we, you know, it's, it's both, it's a combination of, even if you're like selfish, like you're like, look, if everyone, if everyone's selfish, then no one gets anything. If we all agree to not be, so like, I feel like there's scientific, like there's logical mathematical reasons to be empathetic and also uh, and so I feel like in comedy, like co comedian becomes like another one of those in groups where it's like sort of comedians versus sometimes comedians call the audience civilians. And it's not versus them. Like we're supposed to be theoretically, you'd want to be protecting the civilians. You know, uh, you're not combating them. You're like, we're going off into battle to, to to battle these ideas and bring back joy, joy for everyone. But if you don't understand the way that I provide joy, then you can get out of here. Go find somebody else to bring you the joy that you want. And so I, I do feel like it gets, you know, sort of potent. It's it has the capacity to be twisted in a way uh, that I, I mean, my goal in doing comedy is to like do what I want to do, discover, you know, what I can about like, uh, myself and the world and what I think is funny, important, interesting, personal, some combination of all of those things, you know, delivered in a way that hopefully is as unique to, you know, my, like we're, we're all, you know, we're all unique. Right. And so none of us are, and, but we are all unique in the ways that none, nobody else has our exact genetic makeup and environmental factor. And also we all have this thing in common that we are humans, that we are on this planet, breathing this air. And so, uh, this this is kind of like, you know, I mean, these seem I, I don't think I'm saying anything that's specifically controversial, but I don't I didn't always explicitly think about these things. Uh, I was raised by a family that loved me and encouraged me. Uh, and to the point that, you know, even when I would go out into the world to do comedy for the first time, like and I wasn't, let's say, good. I wasn't, let's say, making audiences laugh, but I still had, you know, the love of my family that was like you you're you can do anything and then audiences being like not this though you this is not at anything but and i was like nope that's there were no no exceptions in the familial love that i was provided so i did have i i had to slash got to learn that there were like people who thought things differently than i did like like let's say even politically if not only like humorously like what who who thinks what things are funny and uh, like oh okay so like and i would take notes uh, like, okay so some audiences don't like when a joke doesn't make sense you know and uh and i eventually was thankfully you know like got through practice better at doing comedy and understanding that there were other people with other experiences like that was i think i just i didn't realize this till now like a key moment i remember this a uh, comedian uh, and a, a slightly older comedian, but who had also just sort of started around the same time as me, maybe a little before, uh, 
when I was starting out in Boston, we did a show together uh, at like an Elks Lodge or some kind of, you know, in the suburbs of the Boston area. Uh, and like a lot of the shows that I'd done were in like the Harvard Square area. Like the club I started at was right across from Harvard. Like a lot of students came, uh, you know, there's a lot of schools in the area. I was in grad school myself at the time. So it felt like, oh, like these are people like me. Like they're people who are sitting down and used to raising their hand if they want to talk instead of, you know, uh, getting getting drunk and yelling out they'll get drunk and raise their hands you know uh but this particular show was for like an older crowd perhaps a more blue collar leaning crowd uh but i had my jokes that were like both honed in that other audience uh environment and also just i didn't even think i was just like i'm being me i'm writing what i think is funny and i'm gonna share these jokes and i think that's what you're supposed to do and I had like one joke about being in a master's program. And this older comedian said to me after the show that probably didn't go the best that it could have. He was like, you know, some of these, like probably not everyone here has a master's degree or thinks about master's degrees or, you know. And so it's not that I couldn't tell that joke, but he was like, be aware, like, and eventually I would become aware, like when I became vegan, I was like, oh, like my first joke that I wrote about being vegan is like, I'm vegan, are there any other douchebags here? And because I think when I, I became aware uh, over the course of being vegan uh, and vegetarian before that and living in the world as a, a meat eater before that, that you know there are some people have tropes or thoughts or ideas or jokes or real like innate you know resistant impressions of of the specific stereotype of a vegan like the loudest one the most annoying one the one that maybe you hear more because you don't hear the quiet vegans who are just like nibbling lettuce in the corner you know not not picketing with a sign and and so i understood that and so that's where that joke came from to be like i'm vegan and setting you know, understanding that people would be like uh and then you know joining in with what i my impression of what i assume their impression would be and i think the laugh that i would always get on that was like indicative of the fact that people were like oh oh yeah this is gonna be one thing oh he knows what it's gonna be and so i feel like that that is like one empathy unit at work and yeah. that's and that's maybe in some ways the job or the task or the the art the craft like the the purpose the function of a comedian in many ways is to not not figure out what the audience wants and give it to them but you know figure out who we are and what we want to provide and then also being aware like i've been studying buddhism recently with a, a good buddhist friend of mine uh, a good friend and a Buddhist friend and, and a good Buddhist, I think. Um, and one thing like we're learning about, you know, uh, Buddhist ontology and epistemology, which is like what we know, how we can know it, like what there is, how we can know it. Uh, and we're like, OK, well, it seems like we can see stuff. So in order to like uh, see something, there's the con the eye consciousness that does the seeing. There's the power of that eye consciousness that's within us, like because like a camera can see something, but it doesn't know that it's seeing a thing. So there's on our side, there's at least a couple things. And then there's also the thing like in order to see a blue thing, there has to be us seeing it and also it. I mean, there could be obviously uh, 
illusions like you could see things that aren't there you know by virtue of like tricks of the eye or or op specific optical illusions right. it doesn't mean that everything we think we see is there as we see it but most of the time for there to be this like true valid uh, i I'm, I'm probably using these words like i'm i haven't learned it all yet i don't know i'm not i'm not the buddha yet uh i appreciate all your disclaimers but you don't need to give them <laughs> so uh, I understand. I'm certainly, just to be clear, not giving them for you. Uh, I'm <laughs> the, I understand that we're having a conversation. You're over there and I'm over here, but I'm also giving, I'm also over here and over there and giving them to me. But uh, so they're most of the time, your classic way that seeing seems to work is there's a seer and a thing being seen. And so with comedy, there's the comedy doer and the comedy receiver and no, even the even George Carlin, even any comedian who says, I don't care what the audience thinks, like that's not literally true on every level because part of being a comedian is uh, ultimately on one level, wanting the audience to respond the way that you want them to laughing at your jokes. And uh, so like, it doesn't mean that you just the goal of audience laughing isn't the be all end all, but it's the, you wanna create the thing and then have it be received. And like the laughter is the indication that there is this communion happening, this. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that, uh, that empathy, like, <laughs> uh, like, I don't think, I don't think most comedians are certainly even myself, like I think, I think about empathy in my life and i don't actively think about it with respect to my comedy other than like i know that i have told jokes i have written jokes and i know that other people have that like now i wouldn't write or tell the same way at all because i have learned things about other people's experiences uh and so it's not like before i understood uh you know before i when I first heard the term transgender and learned what it was to, you know, be a transgender person, uh, I, before that, I didn't know anything about it. And right after it, I still knew almost nothing about it. And so I might have, uh, I know that I wrote a joke or two that weren't by any means anti, but were certainly like, let's say neutral, just like playing with the ideas. Uh, and I, through conversations with uh, with some transgender people, with uh, other people, and just you know, through my own like reading, learning, uh, and gaining more information and knowledge uh, about the about this experience that is not my experience, like I I realize I'm like oh like I I now I, I certainly I'm happy to talk about the topic in a more informed way, but I wouldn't just be like, uh, I, I don't think that like, there's, there's a thing that I say sometimes, uh, and now is one of those times, like there's some comedians who perhaps you might hear saying like, I wanna say whatever I wanna say, and I don't care what anyone thinks. And I personally wanna say whatever I wanna say, and also care what other people think, because what, because caring about other people is uh, a part of what goes into me deciding what I want to say. Yes, and what you're, what, okay. First of all, I, 
like, I love it. You are always a faucet, by the way. Mike has a new podcast called The Faucet. Check it out where it is just him talking, which he could do forever. And just such a wonder, you're such a wonderful teacher and everything that you say has so much wisdom and it keeps flowing. And what you, what I'm hearing you say, which is blowing my mind a little bit as a comedian myself, is that not only is there empathy in comedy, but empathy is deeply required for successful comedy because the more you learn about your audience and learn about their experience and try on their experience for size, the more you will be able to craft jokes that touch them and get through to them. And so uh, I just had never thought about empathy in this way that it's like actually required to have this flow between comedy and audience. Uh, even if you quote unquote, don't care what they think, you're right. You essentially do, you must care what they, I mean, you don't must, but <laughs> if you want to receive laughs, you must care what people think uh, enough and you must know about their internal experience enough that and you can craft jokes accordingly. Yes, and here's, here's sort of a, a, another, a teasing or tweezing a part of, of that is when I'm writing, when I'm creating, like in my home, uh, by myself, let's say, you know, if I'm writing jokes right now, uh, nobody else is here except for my girlfriend, and I'm not running everything by her. I run some things by her, but uh, I'm like, hey, an idea. Is this, is this fun? I think it's fun. Uh, but the, the creation process for me is something where I, at first, don't care what anyone else thinks because they're not a part of it. They're not a part of the initial creation process uh i uh and and so then like so let's say i create an uh, an idea i create a joke and then i bring it to an audience uh then like i record uh most of my sets and i i find out did they laugh at it where i wanted them to when i wanted them to how i wanted them to if yes great joke is done uh but that is hardly that's hardly what happens like immediately with every joke uh like i usually have an idea and so even now like i don't even necessarily write out a joke fully before i tell it i like i now do some of the creation process on stage right uh at, you know it's i won't just say anything like i'm not uh i'm not gonna i i have an idea of like this is a a funny interesting important and or s some like i think this is valuable to say it, for some reason that even if it's not funny or a joke now i think that this is like the seed that could be watered to create the joke plant eventually uh, or to, you know, wrap the ball of yarn around or a snowflake to pack into a bigger a snowball eventually and roll it down the hill and make an avalanche and then carve an ice sculpture, you know? Metaphors, um, yes. Uh, and so I do think that's also, like, it's in, I, I don't know if this is like an analogy that would be, that Buddhists would sign off on, but there's like, you know, the middle path is uh, is the thing to follow in that, like, let's say, I think that this is in Buddhism, let's say, they believe there is no permanent unified self. 
like we might be like, what does myself not exist? No, no, like ourselves exist, but they are not permanent selves. Like it wasn't always and it won't always be in this form. It's changing all of the time. Like, you know, my hair is gray now. It wasn't before. Oh, no, I'm not a permanent self. I'm an mm-hmm. impermanent self. So it would be a mistake to think that you are a permanent self. But I, I've heard, I think my friend Gus, who's the Buddhist, told me that it's an even bigger mistake to believe that there is nothing, no self. So it's like the middle path between uh, no self and permanent self. And so similarly, I think the the danger in the da- the, the dangers in <laughs> in comedy and what we're talking about is uh, if you care too much about what the audience thinks, then you are not going to have the creative artistic experience of creating from your own true perspective. Like if you're only like what will make people laugh, then like then you could just, you know, trial and error. And I do think that this is I mean, I was sort of trial and erroring in the beginning before I came to and I still probably am in some ways, you know, you don't know what something's going to be until you try. Uh, And then, you know, Edison, like had, I think, a thousand failures before that he viewed as successful steps towards the creation of the light bulb. Like, oh, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Great. We're really honing in, nice. narrowing, you know, uh, <laughs> car- chipping away at everything that doesn't look like a working light bulb, elephant <laughs> sculpture, and or the statue of David, whatever that analogy is. And, and so if you, I think there is sincerely a danger of not not being yourself and like losing, like losing too much of like, why are you doing, are you doing it only to get the laugh or are you doing it to express something, even if it's like not necessarily a political message or a personal story, but just even if you're like, this is my joke creation that I have created because I love it and I care about it. And on the other side of things, if you care, if you do too much of that, then perhaps you're, uh, you know, maybe comedian isn't like, you know, musicians might be like that, uh, performance artists, but there's something specific to the comedic experience that's like you create your thing from your experience and then uh, you bring it to the audience. And maybe I don't mean to say that comedy is more special than any other art because also music and painting and dance like have an audience. No, but what you're, I'm sorry, to, I'm sorry to ever interrupt you. I never <laughs> want to, but like, I'm having some aha moments here where basically you're describing comedy as, as any, you want to cultivate comedy as any kind of healthy relationship where you don't ever want to abandon yourself in order to please the other. Uh, you want to, you want to please the other and make them feel comfortable, uh, but not at the expense of your own comfort and your own growth and your own authentic creativity. So, uh, right. Is that sort of, Oh, 100%. Here's another analogy to that point. Uh, I heard, uh, let's see. So I am in a monogamous relationship and I am very happy and I love my my girlfriend, Rini, and I love our being exactly in the relationship that we are. For many years, I, uh, I was not in monogamous relationships by choice because I previously didn't think that they worked for me. Uh, and so like, I had like, it's funny. I had like one, the, it's sort of the reverse of the way it happens for a lot of people. Like, you know, you might hear about a relationship opening up and not being successful and being like, well, I guess they don't work for me. I had one monogamous marriage and it didn't work. And I was like, well, I guess it doesn't work. (laughs) And 
And so for, you know, a decade or so, I was in various, uh, you know, structures of open relationships. And, and so there's a, there's a joke that I heard Penn Gillette tell, you know, Ben from Penn and Teller. Uh, he, I heard him do it on W. Kamau Bell's show, Totally Biased, uh, many years ago. Uh, and the, essentially, he was talking as an atheist about people's objections to him from this perspective, the per objections to atheism. They said, without the moral code that religion supplies, how, what keeps you from murdering everyone that you want to murder? Uh -huh. And, and Penn says, I do murder everyone that I want to murder. I don't want to murder anyone. So if the only, is the code the only thing that's keeping you from murdering people? Um, and so the reason I bring that up is that like open relationships and polyamory, like the function of it in my life, I, I realized recently was over the course of many years, like the goal of like, I wanna love, I wanna be able to love, I wanna be open to possibly loving everyone that I want to love. And now I'm doing that. And everyone that I want to love in this romantic uh, relationship that I'm in, I, I'm doing, I'm, I'm loving everyone that I want to love in this way. And that everyone is Rini. I love it. Ah, that's great. And, and sincerely, like to continue the analogy, like if I, uh, if I, I don't feel like I'm losing myself in the relationship. Like if I was too attached to the identity of like open relationship person, then I would lose even more by not having the richness of this relationship that I have, that I got by realizing that not only like, I wasn't letting go a part of myself. I was just letting go a thing that I thought about myself. And I think that that is a thing for comedians that like most comedians, I think most people are uh, at, you know, at heart, at their core, like kind, reasonable people. And there's like Rini brought into my life the uh, like uh, familiarity with A Course in Miracles, uh, which is a spiritual text that you're familiar with, I believe mm -hmm. that, you know, one of the main tenets or uh, expressions of it is that everything in life is either it a call for love or an offering of love, nothing else that offerings of love make sense. Like we can spot those pretty more readily. Uh, maybe not, maybe not everyone all the time, maybe not ourselves all the time, but uh, an offering of love is intuitive. Like, oh yeah, a, a loving expression. Uh, and a, a call for love though, is like if somebody is being mean or harmful or, you know, yelling or aggressive like that, ultimately like that person was a baby uh, we were all babies and we, uh, none of us, you know, none of us got everything exactly perfectly the way that, you know, we can all look back and be like, oh, if only, maybe that could have been different. Like whether it's, you know, where you were raised, how you were raised, you well, know, we it, carry yeah. unconscious traumas with us out into life. If we don't, if we don't work on them, then we carry them out into life. And yeah. so, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that if somebody's being mean to you that you should just be like, oh, right, they were a baby and they were hurt and that's why they're, ex they're, they're 
now projecting this hurt out into the world. And now it's my obligation and duty to be here and forgive them and help them and love them. Like, you know, you're, it's important to uh, be compassionate and loving to as many people as you can, if not starting from, you know, putting on your own oxygen mask and being like, I can express love and compassion to that yelling person farther away where they're not hurting my ears first. Let me care for myself and then, you know, help other people and be like, hey, there's, there's, if you're not yelling as much, you can literally get more oxygen and maybe that'll help. And maybe <laughs> more water would be good as well. Um, and so the, I think that some comedians like i think comedians are i think people are potentially you know all uh kind creative like we all have this capacity yeah uh, and like there's a thing in buddhism that says what one fool can do any fool can do like none of us is uh is less special than anyone else in our capacity to grow yes uh, yes and, and it doesn't mean that we're all in the same place at the same time. Like a three-year-old is not, most three-year-olds are not where most 80-year-olds are, or maybe some are, but, and it's also not age only that distinguishes, uh, you know, who you are and where you are and what you've learned and what you're capable of. It's not how long your life is, but how wide, deep, rich, and other dimensional it is, has been, or might be. And so with comedy, I do think like there are times when if somebody heckles, it, let, let's say a comedian tells a joke that someone doesn't like, uh, and then a person in the audience yells that they don't like it, and then the comedian uh, yells back, and then like everyone's doing a thing that they, they're basically like, look, I, the comedian's like, I'm trying to express myself. Like, I'm trying, like, I love being a comedian. It's about yeah. love. And then <laughs> this person they see as an other, as a, an enemy. And then now they're protecting themselves and their tribe and, you know, right. uh, and their, their family and their art. And, and ultimately, uh, it's, you know, it's confusion. It's, it's a, we're all, like, I remember when one time Daniel Tosh was in a situation like this and my friend Aaron Judge wrote something. Aaron is a wonderful uh, comedian and a person who I look to for uh, wise counsel and guidance in many life, uh, life relationship, art, comedy uh, mm -hmm. contexts. And I remember she, if I can paraphrase enough to make it make sense that like, there was the norms, like his joke was about sexual assault. And so she was like, the norms of like feminism and comedy doing are like coming, are coming up against each other. And like, these are like the guidelines of how to be a comedian. And they include if someone, you know, yells out at you, then you respond in this way. Right. And the, and the guidelines of feminism were like, if someone says a thing that is potentially uh, hurtful uh, in ways emotionally, if not more than that, uh, then you speak out, you know, and these these norms are potentially clashing and but but they they don't they don't have to all the time. Like there are comedians who are feminists. There are uh, people who can understand like that, you know, like. I like thinking about guidelines like this that, you know, instead of saying like, these are the rules, like 
there are multiple guidelines and like you'll do one unless there's like a superseding one like in in Judaism, there's a, a guideline or a rule or a law or whatever it is that you don't work on the Sabbath. You know, if you're a doctor, you don't see patients. But if on the Sabbath you're walking as a doctor and you see someone in medical need, uh, there's a greater guideline that supersedes don't work on the Sabbath. The doctor's like, I'm sorry, what can I do? It's save a life, help, right. help someone. And so sometimes there there is this you know not this gray area the seemingly gray area this weird you know like seemingly non-wiggle room we're like what can i do this one says this and this one says this so i have to yell at this lady <laughs> as a comedian i would be not doing my due diligence to not yell at this lady <laughs> yeah i mean i yeah i i that's interesting they kind of like um, the, the call and response uh, of heckling is part of the whole dance in a way. And one would hope that both the comedian and the heckler can come away with the experience having learned something from each other. <laughs> I, I, I'll say yes to that. And also I'll say like, not every, like most comedians don't want to be heckled. Like I've had experience, like some comedians might encourage it or live in a world where they thrive on it. Uh, and if you, it's sort of like, you know, if you go to a hip hop show, sometimes they'll be like, when I say this, you say that, and right. then it's appropriate to say whatever they said. But, right. and sometimes at a concert, it is appropriate to sing along, but in comedy, you're not meant to sing along. You're not meant to do, like when there's crowd work, then sure, absolutely. If a comedian asks you a direct question, then respond. But, uh, it doesn't mean even if uh, 10 minutes after the comedian asked you a question, if you're like, Ooh, I have a better answer. Like at that point, you're no longer, uh, it, it's not the same situation. So, and I think, I think heckling has a much larger like, uh, image than in actuality. Like most people, like people who aren't comedians, like it's one of their first questions, like what do you do when you have a heckler? What's the worst heckler you've ever had? And like, we all have stories, but I've done thousands of shows and most of them don't have hecklers. It's like, even if it was dozens that did, it's like such a small fraction. And it it's often, you know, here's my favorite way it goes. It's like, what did you just say? Like, I was just ordering a drink very quietly. Well, see that you don't, you know, like, and, <laughs> The way that, like, to, to your point, uh, the way that I strive to respond if someone yells out, like, at first I might ignore it because maybe it was, like, not even talking to me if I didn't hear what it was. Uh, the second time, or if I heard it clearly, I might be like, would you say that again? Like, what is it that you said? And sometimes that will scare a person now that the spotlight has been shown on them. But if they say it again, I, if I don't understand it or like I'll ask what they mean, or even if I do understand it, I'll ask why they're, why did they say it? Why did you, even if it's something that they truly believed, why did you say that? Like now in this situation, it was a call me, for love. It was a call for love. It, and, uh, yes. <laughs> 
generally they're they're needing attention right there's some part there's some part of them some inner child that's saying i didn't get attention someone else is getting it now i'm envious this is how i'm going to get some for myself i mean it kind of reminds me of like when i when I served tables, which I did for many years, uh, and there would be somebody like, particularly there was this um, older gentleman uh, when I served at 48th and Lexington, it was this fancy bistro and a lot of like bankers and international tourists and wealthy people came to eat there. And there was this man who came in as a regular by himself and he was very particular and he wanted little neck clams to begin with. And then he wanted, wanted a burger done this certain way without a bun and whatever. Uh, and he was so, uh, he was, he was brusque and he was rude and he never smiled. And at first it really offended me whenever he would speak to me because I was like, nobody can speak to me like that. And then I was like, well, you know, he's, he, there's a part of him that feels that he needs to be taken care of in some way. And it probably goes back way farther back than what I'm responsible for to his childhood where he wasn't held in a certain way. And when I started perceiving him in that way, the whole relationship softened, you know, because I became more attentive, not to the point where I was sacrificing my dignity, but I became more attentive and I um, anticipated his needs and I, and I got to learn his order. And so in a way like that heckler, like I, he was just doing the best he could from his level of consciousness and experience. And wonder, thank you for sharing that. That is, that's exactly the point. Uh, I have three things to say, I think. Number one, Aparna Nancherla, a <laughs> wonderful comedian, uh, has said a thing, something like just, why not go through your day, I'm paraphrasing, why not go through your day assuming that whoever you're talking to, whoever you're running into might be going through something. Yeah. Like, have you, because we've all been, whatever that means, going through something. And then sometimes we end up talking with people who are just being e even neutral, you know? Uh, and it can be harsh or grating or blunt or make us feel a way that like, and it doesn't mean walk around on eggshells all the time, but just if whenever you can remember, like, Try, if you can remember that you have had that, I mean, this is I think, perhaps the literal definition of empathy. If you have had an experience that you can imagine that someone else might be having that experience at either that time or a different time, like you're literally not alone. Um, so that's just such a, a valuable thing for me to remember. Uh, and uh, I... And it's the hardest to remember when you are the one going through the thing, you know, like when when you're more calling for love than capable of offering it, you know, hopefully it's so that that man was lucky, even if he didn't feel that way to have you as his server. And the the second thing is I I conceive of I talk about this on stage sometimes that I conceive of hecklers as babies like they are crying because they don't have what they want and they don't know how to get it and it's like the good news is usually unless the hecklers here's the thing unless the hecklers so drunk unless the hecklers so drunk that they literally don't have the use of their legs they are not a baby they can get up and leave and give themselves you know unfortunately they have the bottle but that's the thing is they want they really need not their bottle but and it's not to say that that this works perhaps this might 
I, my goal is not to shame audiences into not heckling, but to inform about like legitimately, like it maybe there's somebody who, if they heard me say that and they were too drunk, they'd be like, I'm not a baby, not me, <laughs> I, I am not one. <laughs> um, and the, the third thing is, I think I, I don't know that I heard this, but I think I heard that this happened, that Sarah Silverman was on a radio show, perhaps Howard Stern, and somebody called in and was saying mean things, like, you know, heckling the radio show for lack of a better. Uh, and they're like, they said to this person, like, we're gonna hang up on you now. And then right before they hung up, the last thing they heard the person say was, I exist. Oh my God. <laughs> That's profound. <laughs> and Sarah Silverman is one of those comedians who um, like famously res responds to hecklers on say Twitter with like deeply empathetic and patient and generous things. A perfect example. Yeah, that re I think in the last year or two, uh, somebody like called her the C word and she looked back through their Twitter feed and found that they were in need of, I think a back operation that they couldn't afford and reached out and was like, are you in pain? And the person was like, yes. And I think they helped him get the treatment that he needed because she saw, she knows she is such a, you know, she knows who she is. There's a, a Ram Dass thing of uh, like, we're all, uh, you know, we're all going through the world and every once in a while you might catch eyes with someone and be like, oh, that person is home. <laughs> like, and, you know, it, who knows how rare it is. And maybe, maybe it's not every, maybe that person isn't all the time, but uh, maybe you're not all the time. And maybe she's not like, I don't have Sarah Silverman's internal experience, but I can see from what she's put out in the world. I love her book, The Bedwetter. I loved her show. I think I Love You America is what it was called. Like where she literally went around like as a, you know, self-professed liberal progressive person talking with people who had differing political and social beliefs to connect with them on a level where we are all human. And she, so she saw this guy yelling at her online as a call for love. And she responded with love in a way that like, we're not, we're like in the way that, you know, I, did I talk about mosquitoes today yet? No. <laughs> uh, I was, I, I did another, another thing earlier where like I had this experience where I read in the, there's a thing called the Lam Rim. Are you familiar? It's uh, a Buddhist chronology essentially of like that, is, that people put together hundreds of years after the Buddha lived of uh, essentially the 84,000 pieces of advice or ways to live or, you know, quotes from the Buddha wow. that the Buddha didn't say in a particular chronological order, or he said them in an order, but they weren't the order that the Lam Rim is, has been organized so that you can start at the beginning and be like, if you, if you don't know anything about Buddhism and you want to, you think you might be interested in doing it, start here and move forward as such. And one of the, I'm at the beginning of like an article about it. And in this article, uh, it says like, you know, don't, don't kill is a thing. Like try, you know, live your life without killing. Like even a mosquito, like better than swatting a mosquito would be to try and, if it's in your home, like get it out of your home. And then even better than that is 
being constructive as opposed to just avoiding being destructive, like to be constructive and feed the mosquito, be like, I've got so much blood. Like, look, you can have some of my blood mosquito. And, uh, and so the other day I, like I noticed a mosquito on me and instead of swatting it or, or shooing it away immediately, I was like, Oh, it's, I'm feeding it. I drink this for it is my blood. I am mosquito Jesus, you know? <laughs> and, and then I talked with my friend Gus, uh, who is Buddhist about this. And he was like, Oh yeah, that's like above and beyond until you get to a certain level. Like you don't have to literally sacrifice your body. Like the Buddha wouldn't have said you had to right away do that, that, <laughs> You know, you'll know when you like when you're ready for that level. And so similarly, analogously back to our life situation, uh, like not everyone has to do or can do what Sarah Silverman did with that person for that person, uh, because she was at a certain place in her life uh, where she could, where she had the the resources, the wherewithal, the consciousness. uh, And so. Like there's some people, there's some people in my life that I have, I'm like, I'm not going to engage with this like person online, let's say like right now until I've had my, uh, you know, coffee of enlightenment. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. I mean, you, you feel when you're ready and if you, because if you are trying to serve in a way uh, that's too much for you, or it's before you're ready, it's actually doing a disservice to your own self. So just like intuiting and really listening to what would, to what would serve you. And if it serves, and it serves you frequently, it will serve the other as well. And can I say this to bring it back to my work, yes. uh, you know, empathy in comedy, probably one of my greatest challenges on this topic is that I see these other comedians who are, let's say, I'm like, they're not being empathetic. You know, (laughs) I'm like, what's it like to be then? I can't even imagine. And like, I'm like, I'm empathetic and I can't imagine what it's like to be. I mean, I I can only remember, uh, I mean, hopefully in these times that like, I also like I am, I'm further along this path than I used to be. I can't compare myself to anyone else's experience, but like, I can of course understand like when these comedians are like, we just want to do comedy. We just want to bring joy. Like they're not actively saying like, I have a first amendment right to hurt people's feelings and they can't blog about it. You know, that's what, that's what I, I get sometimes like, but I, they're not, you know, which I think is also funny and I might jot it down to be a joke that I say like every comedian has a first amendment right to say whatever they want to say hurt people's feelings and not get blogged about like it's like here a joke that I tell now that I've been telling you know in these times to my to various screens uh, or to the air in a park uh, is like some comedians are like you know who can you even make fun of anymore? It's like, you can't even make fun of anyone anymore. And I'm like, you know who you can make fun of is that comedian. You, if you are that comedian, you can certainly make fun of yourself and I can make fun of myself. I don't know anything more than other people. I don't have any more access to the world 
its uh, its senses, my senses and insights. Like I'm probably like less in touch. I'm certainly less in touch with all of my senses than my girlfriend is. She's like, like when I have smoked pot or when I've eaten an edible and I like lie there and I'm like, I feel my legs tingling. And she's like, I'm like that always. And I'm like, what's that like? And she's like, try it when you're not high. And I'm like, oh yeah, leg. Like, is are you always tingling? If a leg tingles and I'm not there to perceive the tingling, is it really tingling? And I honestly don't know. But the, so my goal is to, you know, continue to, <laughs> here's a thing that I tweeted recently is uh, like Jesus said, love thy neighbor. And then politicians said, well, let's see if we can gerrymander this neighborhood so that we can know where to stop loving people. Uh, like who don't we have to love? Who's not a neighbor? We're all earth human and non-human neighbors yes. and continually hopefully expanding the the sphere of like well let's not why not expire why not expand the sphere of empathy to be like i don't know the shape of the earth or a little more like that's a that'd be a at least to start with and then sorry aliens earth first but like let's start with the let's start with the earth let's think <laughs> think globally act globally <laughs> Yes. Also, there are aliens here, but that's not a topic for this podcast. Oh, oh sure. But or let's say, think globally, act locally, feel globally. Yes. Beautiful. I hold on. Need to write that down. <laughs> um. Well, Mike, you are the best, and I've learned so much talking to you, and I love listening to you talk. And um, what, what we've been doing at the end of each of these episodes is asking a question from the database of questions from the app that is basically the producer of this show, this mm -hmm. app called Zany, which is um, uh, basically a, a conversation engine for teams who work remotely. So to help people become more empathetic with each other. So they're questions that have nothing to do with work whatsoever. So the question I will ask to you, Mike Kaplan, is what is a non-traditional place that you find sacred? Hmm. Uh, that's so interesting because the idea of like traditional would seem to imply uh, a tradition, which is like, you know, whether it's every year at this time I do this, whether every, uh, I go to this place, like tradition. So I guess we're talking about a place. So like either geographical or otherwise. So that's good. That's going to be my way in based on what I just said. Cause I'm going to say like, if I hold something sacred, I want to visit it frequently slash traditionally. I want there to be a tradition of visiting it, but that's only if we're talking about space. So what's, what's a, I'm going to say like, what's a time that uh, I sometimes, so every, I'll start by saying uh, every morning, you know, I wake up and I read, uh, right now I'm reading an Ursula K. Le Guin book called Always Coming Home, which is beautiful. And I drink a liter of water right away. And, uh, and then I meditate and then I do some writing and journaling and and these are things that I find sacred that uh, are my are traditional, but not related to a place. Like I'm much more 
about like audio than visual and tactile and more about like writing than performing in ways if that's a spectrum and i'm more about time than space uh so which and i guess also like the morning is not a non-traditional time to do these things so i'm 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 figuring out what the answer is by talking all the way around it like you know that that illusion of is it a vase or is it two faces almost kissing and i'm like okay you're like where's a vase in your life and i'm like well let me tell you about these two people kissing and then we'll say it's wherever they're not kissing that's where the vase is um i guess uh what's something a place that i mean because there's so many traditional places like that i find sacred like like the park near my home that's a traditional place that I find sacred. I guess here's what I'll say. Uh, used bookstores. <laughs> like yeah. I, I just realized like when I would travel uh, to do comedy, whenever I go to a town that I've never been to or a town that I have been to, like the places that I visit and revisit, the places that I look up are often vegan restaurants, uh, comic book stores and used bookstores. And so I think that, I mean, I'm sure that a bookstore can be sacred to many, but I do think that it qualifies as a non-traditional space in the world of sacredness. It's not literally a church, usually. I don't know why I'm trying to convince you. I think you already accept it, but that is my final answer, used bookstores. <laughs> I think that's a beautiful final answer. I agree. I find used bookstores sacred as well. Mike Kaplan, thank you so much for being a guest on What's Betwixt Us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to episode 10 of What's Betwixt Us, Stories of Working While Human. To dig into Mike's hilarious and brilliant work and learn more about the man behind the microphone, check out MikeKaplan.com. That's M-Y-Q-K-A-P-L-A-N.com. What's Betwixt Us is powered by Zany, designed to build trust and authentic human connection in remote workspaces. More at zanie.app. Human first, everything else after. Human first, everything else after.